Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. Hello again. This Truth Talk is based on two articles, two back-to-back articles that I've just finished. The first is Jesus, the full representation of God, and the second is called a two-faced God with a big question mark. Now, those of you who've listened to these podcasts or followed my articles know that I'm a passionate advocate of Christocentricity. That's Jesus-centeredness. A vital part of this way of understanding the Bible, and in fact life in general, is that the Lord Jesus Christ presents the full nature, character, values, principles, and priorities of the Godhead. This means that although the Scriptures, in general, reveal the ways of God and humanity, Jesus will always be the plumb line of truth. So, if I want to know something is of God, then I need only to look to Jesus. However, there are other theologians who contend that although Jesus is indeed the fullest revelation of the Godhead, he is not the full revelation. In other words, they contend that some aspects of God's nature and character are not manifest in Jesus but are found elsewhere in the Bible. Put in a very crude sense, it's as though God has two faces, one benign and loving, and the other apparently harsh and violent. There are also some scholars who hold to a form of Christocentricity, as I define it, but they contend that we find Jesus himself in the Old Testament, and in fact in the book of Revelation, where he is sometimes presented very differently to the gospel depictions. Some also propose that because God is one, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one Trinity, that anything attributed to God anywhere in the Bible must equally apply to the Lord Jesus, who of course is God the Son. In this sense then, all biblical references to God would be Christocentric in nature. Now, before going any further, I want to stress the distinction between full and fullest and why it's important. Why is it important to have this whole discussion about is God the fullest or the full representation of the Godhead? Well, firstly, if we concede that Jesus of Nazareth is not the full representation of the Godhead, then we of necessity have to find ways of reinterpreting key texts in Scripture, such as Colossians 1.19, Colossians 2.9, Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3, and so on. And in my view, any attempts to read these texts as anything other than straightforward statements of the full representational nature of Jesus often end in seriously distorting the scriptures. Secondly, claims that God displays different character traits in the Old Testament to those manifest in Jesus have other serious implications. So once again, those who hold this view are obliged to reinterpret the clear statements such as In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's Colossians 2.9. And attempting to do this usually results in the claim that Paul's declarations about the deity of Jesus refer to the ascended Christ and not the Christ of the Gospels. (laughs) However, this flatly contradicts the Lord Jesus' own statements about himself, like, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's, of course, in John 14.9. Now look, while these things that I've mentioned are important considerations, the biggest problem inherent in the fullest but not full idea concerns our ability to know God. You see, 
if Jesus Christ is not the full representation of the nature and character of the triune God, then how are we to know and to trust him? Are we to select those character traits that fit our concept of who God should be? Hopefully not. Are we perhaps to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and disregard what it reveals of things like divine holiness and justice and judgment? No, definitely not. But if we cannot rely on Jesus to adequately present the nature of the Godhead to us, then what can we know of him and what can we trust? If Jesus, who is God manifest, is not our primary interpreter of Scripture, then how do we rightly interpret the Scriptures themselves? On the positive side, however, knowing that Jesus is the full revelation of the nature and character of God gives us both certainty and consistency. We know that we can know God because Jesus reveals Him fully. And His life and words are faithfully recorded in the Gospels within the context of the fullness of inspired Scripture. And it also gives us a consistent standard against which we can evaluate and better understand all of the Bible and, in fact, life in general. Okay, but now, first, before going any further, I must anchor this whole matter in the biblical evidence. You see, I think it's really important that this thesis that I'm presenting is based on a responsible interpretation of Scripture rather than just my opinion or somebody else's opinion. Now, the clearest biblical statements on this issue are in two verses in Colossians. They read, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's in Jesus. And the second is, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Colossians 1.19 is, of course, part of Paul's powerful declaration of the supremacy of Christ, which he actually starts in verse 1 with these words, He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And then further on in verse 22, Paul refers to our reconciliation with God by Christ's physical body through death. And then in chapter 2, verse 9, he uses the words, in bodily form. So we put all this together in the context of these verses. It is the physical, bodily Jesus of Nazareth that we are considering, and not some mystical, pre-incarnate or post-ascension Jesus. In Colossians 1.19, three key words are all, and fullness, and dwell. Now, frankly, there's no particularly difficulties in translating the underlying Greek here. Pan, which translates as all, means whole or every. And pleruma, which means fullness, means repletion or fills or full. Robertson quotes a man called Lightfoot, Dr. Lightfoot. These are two great theologians of the past. And he quotes him as commenting on the fact that pleruma is a recognized technical term in theology denoting the totality of the divine powers and attributes. The totality. Now, the third key word in the text is dwell. And this really just means to house permanently, to inhabit or to dwell. Colossians 2.9 contains the same three words, but it adds one more, which means corporeal or physical or incarnate or in bodily form. Now, here again, Robertson asserts that, quote, all the pleroom of the Godhead not just contains aspects, or not just, sorry, certain aspects, dwells in Christ and in physical form. And then he adds that Paul asserts plainly 
the deity and the humanity of Jesus in a corporeal form. Okay, look, I can't go into all the details of the subtleties of the various commentators and what they've applied to these texts, but I do think I need to cite just one well-known current New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright. He writes this, commenting on Colossians 1.19. He writes, God in all his fullness was pleased to take a permanent residence. And then in brackets he says, this is the best way of taking the Greek verb, closes brackets, in him. So let me read that again without the brackets. God in all his fullness was pleased to take a permanent, permanent residence in him. The full divinity of the man Jesus is stated without any implications that there are two gods. It is the one God in his fullness who dwells in him. Now to even better understand Paul's inspired statements, let me take you to some of the things that Jesus actually says about himself. Do you remember when he was talking to his disciples about the fact that he in himself was the only way to God the Father? And then he said this, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's in John 14, verses 7 to 9. Now, earlier in John's account, he recorded Jesus as saying this, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. John 12, verses 44 to 45. So, Jesus is making it pretty darn clear, right? Now, there are several other texts that bear on this entry on this issue, but I, I really only have space and time to cite just three. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3, the first part of verse 3, says this, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Then in 1 John 1 verses 1 to 3, it says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we, what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this passage is an amplification of what John wrote in his gospel when he said, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. Then another relevant text is John 1.18, which reads, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now these speak powerfully to the fact that it is the Jesus who was manifest in the flesh, physical, with man, 
that could be seen and touched and heard. He is the one who fully represents the Godhead. Now, the aim of all this discussion, analysis, and commentary is to, to make the point that in Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus of the Gospels, we have the full presentation of God's nature and character. And frankly, I just can't see how any other interpretation can be given to these texts. You've probably picked up by now that I'm using the term Jesus of Nazareth as shorthand for God incarnate in bodily form in the person of Jesus. Just an easy way of saying all of that. Now, the problem that some folk have with my contentions that Jesus fully represents the Godhead is that Jesus of Nazareth appears devoid of wrath and justice, but that these are divine qualities much in evidence in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation. So therefore, they reason that Jesus of Nazareth might be the fullest, in fact is the fullest, but he's not the full representation of God, crudely put. The contention is that God is both a happy face and an angry face, much like the theater masks worn by early Greek thespians. However, Jesus did speak of wrath and judgment, and so we are able to apply a Jesus perspective to these subjects as well. Now, some people claim that Jesus, God in bodily form, appeared throughout the Old Testament, and therefore we can attribute the words and acts of wrath and justice associated with parts of the Old Testament witness directly to him. And a second claim is that, listen, all of the Bible is inspired, right? So in light of that, we must regard any depictions of divine wrath and judgment and attribute them to Jesus, because after all, he is part of the triune Godhead. Now, there are apparent manifestations of God in human form, tangible to human senses, and these are known as theophanies, and they occur quite frequently in the Old Testament. But on close inspection, we can separate these into angelic appearances, which are known as angelophanies, and the appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ, which are Christophanies. There are nine generally accepted theophanies in the Old Testament, and in my assessment, four pertain to angels, and five to the pre-incarnate Christ. Now look, I can only at this time, of course, give a very brief outline of the Christophanies, and then I'll just give you the scripture references to the angelophanies. Okay, number one. In Genesis 12, verses 6 to 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham, he didn't even have the H in his name at that stage, Abraham, and promised to give his descendants the land of Canaan. Abraham built an altar to memorize this theophany, memorialize this theophany, and the account reveals only benign intent. Secondly, in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 22, here the Lord appeared again to Abraham to confirm and elaborate on the covenant that he had already made. God changed Abraham's name to Abraham, and he changed his wife's name to Sarah, with an H in it. He introduced circumcision as the outward son of the covenant, and he blessed Abraham's descendants, which, by the way, included Ishmael. Now, once again, this account reveals only blessing and benign intent. Thirdly, in Genesis 18 verses 1 to 33, what at first appears to be three angels approach Abraham while they are on their way down to Sodom and Gomorrah, but it soon becomes evident that one of them is in fact God himself. The Lord told the two angels that were with him that he intended to disclose to Abraham his plans concerning the two cities of iniquity. And the reason he gave 
was that he had chosen Abraham to teach his people to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Right, this begs the question, right? If that's what he wanted to teach Abraham, then what did he, the Lord, demonstrate to Abraham of his righteousness and his just ways? Three things in this, in this passage. One, although the evidence was that the sin of the people of those two cities was immense, was great and grievous, God said that he would personally verify this before acting against them. Secondly, even if only ten righteous people were in that city, he would not destroy the city while they were in it. And thirdly, chapter 19 tells just how wicked the inhabitants actually were, and how the two angels still led Lot, that's Abram's cousin, and his immediate family to safety before destroying the area. Then the fourth incident is in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Now this is the account of how the Lord appeared to Moses from within a burning bush. It's here that he commissioned Moses to return to Egypt to bring the Israelites out of captivity. And he revealed his name to Moses as I Am, which Jesus of Nazareth later attributed to himself in that well-known statement, Before Abram was born, I Am. That's in John 8, 58. Now, once again, what can we learn from about God's nature and character from this account? Two things. Firstly, that God was concerned with the suffering of his people in Egypt. Secondly, that he cared enough for them to send Moses to Egypt as his envoy, to secure their release, and to lead them into the promised land. Then the last Christophany, Joshua 5, 13-15. Here the Lord appears to Joshua before he began his conquest of Canaan, and he referred to himself as the commander of the armies of the Lord. But he stated that he was neither for nor against Joshua. The strongest evidence, by the way, that this was a Christophany was the command to Joshua to take the sandals off his feet because he was standing on holy ground. Now, nothing particular concerning God's nature and character is revealed in this encounter. However, his neutrality, he's neither for nor against, indicates that he was not necessarily endorsing Joshua's subsequent violent actions. Quite important to note that. In these five theophanies, God revealed himself in ways which are totally consistent with his self-revelation in and through Jesus of Nazareth. Just for the record, The four angelophanies, which really aren't relevant to a discussion of the nature and character of God in any direct way, can be found in the following places. Genesis 32, verses 1 to 30. Then in Numbers 22, verses 22 to 35. In Judges 13, verses 1 to 22. And then finally in Daniel 3, verses 16 to 28. All right, let's have a quick look at Jesus in the book of Revelation. Now, a major consideration here is that John developed this book, the book of Revelation, almost entirely as a collection of vivid, symbolic pictures. There's very little in this apocalyptic work that should be taken at surface level. For instance, the Lord Jesus is depicted in chapter 1 as having burning feet and a sword instead of a tongue. In chapters 5 and 6, he's imaged as a lamb. And in chapter 19, he's imaged as a warrior mounted on a horse. So the symbolism in these images is quite clear and speak figuratively of his glory, his redemption, and his ultimate 
judgment and should not be taken at surface value. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation record Jesus dictating seven letters to the seven churches in the area. And in my book, Revelation the Stars, which you can get on my site, www.truthisword.com, I list the commendations and the warnings that Jesus makes in these letters, along with his commendations and his promises. Now, significantly, he accompanies his words of warning and condemnation to the churches, always with instructions on how to remedy their condition. And in the later chapters of the book of Revelation, it paints a terrible portrait of judgment. Yet, you know, we would be mistaken to think that Jesus of Nazareth, as recorded in the Gospels, did not speak about these things, about judgment. He certainly did. He certainly did. Okay, before setting out finally my own understanding of how we can interpret all of Scripture from a Jesus perspective, including the wrath and judgment passages, I want to attempt to describe how I understand why some scholars resist the idea of Jesus being the full representation of God. As I think about it, the problem appears to be centered around the question of how to deal with the wrath and judgment parts of the Bible that do not appear to reconcile with how Jesus portrays the Godhead in the Gospels. To put it another way, how to accept the divine self-revelation in Christ Jesus without compromising the inspiration and trustworthiness of the whole Bible, including its ethically and morally difficult bits. So the solution for many when faced with this dilemma is to contend rather that Jesus of Nazareth, while being the fullest revelation of God, is not the full revelation. In other words, they contend that there are other aspects of the divine character and nature which are not revealed in and through Jesus. Now, I've already pointed out that this approach flatly contradicts key texts in Paul's writing, and it flatly contradicts what Jesus said about himself. Now, I hold that the problems of this nature arise for many folk when they do not recognize the following three things. One, the actual nature and purpose of the Bible, and that the scriptures faithfully and accurately record the thoughts, words, perceptions, and understandings both of God and of humans who do not necessarily present God's sentiments or motivations. They might say things and do things which are quite ungodly, frankly. But the scripture, because it's divinely inspired, is accurate and truthful and says it exactly as it is. Secondly, it's a failure to recognize that Jesus of Nazareth does in fact speak on wrath and judgment. It's not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The revelation of Jesus as presented in the Old Testament and in the last book of the Bible is actually not in conflict with God's self-revelation in Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Jesus spoke of wrath and judgment, and he interpreted the most significant of all historical examples of this, which is the account of the Great Flood, by giving vital insights into divine love and compassion in the context of judgment. If you want to see something of how God acts in wrath and judgment, and how his compassion and judiciousness and empathy and heartbreak comes through, then look at the account of the flood carefully. It's this account that Jesus authenticates and references in the New Testament. And the third area is not recognizing that Jesus' life 
and the full body of his teachings give the context to his statements concerning wrath and judgment. We can understand how he approaches these two subjects by looking at him, what he said, and how he lived out his life. So before I end, just a brief note on what theologians refer to as a canon within a canon. Now what they mean by this is the misguided idea of regarding the Gospels as a higher order of inspired scripture than the rest of the Bible. In years gone by, folk referred to this as red-letter Christianity, because only the words of Jesus, which were printed in red in some Bibles, were deemed as important, and the other stuff was deemed as unimportant. But in our day, the ascription red-letter Christianity is actually applied to religious politics more than anything else. So folk with this agenda take the words of Jesus and apply them straight into their modern political framework with little regard for the original intended meaning. So for instance, they take the Sermon on the Mount and they make it become a manifesto for a dominionist religious political agenda and so on. Now, I don't subscribe to either form of red-letter Christianity. For me, all of the Bible is inspired and necessary. And Jesus fully presents the nature and character of the God in and therefore constitutes a reliable interpretive yardstick for the whole Bible, all of it. He is the primary interpreter of Scripture. Please note carefully that I use throughout the word primary, not the only, primary interpreter of Scripture. Okay, lastly then, how do I understand a Christocentric interpretation of the Scripture? You know, I guess the most succinct statement which I've made on this is in an article I wrote for Conspectus, which is the academic journal of the South African Theological Seminary, which you can read on my site as well. And the shortest way I can state my Christocentric method of interpreting the Bible is as follows. I interpret all of Scripture through the lens of what Jesus said, did, and what he revealed of the nature and character of the Godhead. When something appears contradictory to his divine revelation in Christ Jesus, then I search for other ways of understanding the apparently contradictory testimony. If I cannot find a way to do this without potentially violating the integrity of any part of Scripture, then I simply admit that I just do not understand adequately, and I focus rather on what Jesus revealed. Now in doing this, I'm really not copping out but simply acknowledging the reality of divine mystery, as well as acknowledging my very limited ability to adequately comprehend. In essence, when I come to these difficult passages which don't seem to be reconcilable, I say to myself, this I do not understand. But what Jesus has revealed, I do understand. Therefore, I will focus on his self-revelation and leave the rest open to possible future understanding, either in this life or in the next. And you know, you can find many examples of my attempts to follow this methodology in my blog posts over the last few years. Well, I really hope this has been helpful. Now, you see, more and more scholars around the world are writing and teaching on the centrality of Jesus, and I'm absolutely convinced that this is a subject currently on God's heart. And I really hope and trust that what I've said here in this Truth Talk will provide you with insights into what maybe others are producing, and you can understand them differently, better, as well as to understand the body of my own work. May God bless you 
as you seek to understand all of Scripture and all of life through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth is the Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, truth is the word.